Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. Hey, the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation board election voting has concluded. We have results now. And so uh, we've got some links to more details on the results, but here are the results. Cohort A contains three members who are now Maxim Fedorov, Kenneth London, and Ben Mark. So congratulations to the new members. And the next round of elections will be next year for Cohort C. So it'll be a different set of members. Do you know how these cohorts work? Like, what does it mean to be in a cohort? I was looking that over, and we do have another link to the original announcement for the elections where they had more information about how they run things. Yeah, I assume it's just that they don't want to have an election and replace the entire board mm. all at once every time just because you lose all continuity and institutional knowledge. It's a rotation. Yeah, so it just kind of come out in, in smaller groups. Hey, that's smart. Who would have thought? <laughs> Looks for folks doing smart things. <laughs> and next up, xdoc0.28.3 was released. So just a quick rundown of what's new. There's an option to set the themes to the system version. Ah. I think that sounds familiar, David. Glad to see that got released. <laughs> you want to make a comment on that? <laughs> Yay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we covered that in a previous news where David had made that contribution. And it was just the idea of respecting the light and dark theme of respecting the system setting. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Another feature was uh, pages or guides. The titles now show in the search autocomplete cleaner printing for the type spec information, and several improvements to the admonition blocks, which is that new way of doing callouts in the xdocs, and block quotes when in dark mode. So for most of us, we'll probably just notice these changes as we're going about our normal work and looking up our docs, and we might see, hey, this is a little different, it's a little better. All right, well, it's official. Jose has tweeted and has made a request for contribution. We'll just tag that right here, RFC. Request for contribution. That's totally what it means. And he's saying if anyone wants to move from Webpack to ESBuild and help XDoc, that a pull, a pull request would be very, 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 that's three varies, appreciated. But moving on, it looks like there is now officially an Elixir application deployed in the iOS App Store. We talked to Dominic on episode 69 about their work. This app is called the Diode Drive. It's been released to the Apple App Store to, and the Android App Store. It's running live view on the device. It's not loading it from a server or a web page. It's hosted on the actual device, rendering the page from itself. So check out the linked tweet where he links to the App Store listings. And if you want to give it a try for yourself. That is a major milestone. When we had Dominic on before and he said, yes, we have it working on Android and we're, we're trying to solve some of these iOS issues because iOS has specific policies about dynamic content. I didn't say this on the episode, but I'm like, I don't, I don't know if they'll be able to pull it off. I don't think they can do it, but they did it. So that is major, major cool. You're a doubter, huh? Yep. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I doubted it, but not because of the ability and that it would look good, right? But that app, the App Store people would allow it. <laughs> That's where my doubt came in. Yes. My doubt was like, I don't think Apple will ever let this fly. We have a link to the tweet where he announced this. And he's also sharing a link to a project that they had created that was loading up the canonical like to-do app as an Elixir example, in a mobile shell kind of thing to run it like this so people can start and play with that on their own. But I think it's a very interesting idea, just the idea of being able to run Elixir on the device of the mobile device itself and serving up web pages. Just very, very creative. And I'd love to see more of this. I had to check the App Store myself just to see. And yeah, I saw it. That's pretty cool. Next up, Erlang 25 RC2 has been released. We'll have a link to more details. They're looking for feedback, even if it's just to say, you know, that it's working. Check the show notes for instructions on how to give that feedback. This might mean that the final release is nearing. So reminder of what Erlang 25 includes. This is the one that includes the JIT for ARM processors, which includes Apple's M1 chips. So that'll be a good, a good improvement. I don't want to ignore, you know, the other things that are happening in, in uh, Erlang 25. And so in this particular RC, a couple new functions were added, like maps group from list and lists unique and file lib and sure path. There's, and there's more details on what all that stuff means. My takeaway is 
wait, wait a second. You mean list didn't have a unique function already? <laughs> that, was, that caught me by surprise, and I'm sure there's a good reason for it. I guess I, I should consider myself spoiled by Elixir. But that's pretty cool to see all that in Erlang 25. So I'm excited to see that release. Next up, Jose Valim shared his experience of compiling Elixir from scratch, which is not something we typically do as a normal developer, as a user of Elixir. But so he's compiling the Elixir language from scratch on his new Apple Mac Studio M1 Max. So the feedback he gave was it is literally two times faster than his previous Intel MacBook Pro using Erlang OTP 25 RC2. So that's this new RC2 that we're talking about with the new JIT for ARM processors. And doing that to compile on both sets of hardware, it was 19 seconds versus 38 seconds. So very neat just to see some real world measurable impact on how that can actually improve developer experience and be able to stay in the flow better. Very cool. He says that's compiling Elixir, but I think that also includes OTP. I'm not sure. Because the flags he's passing in is is like OT, is about Erlang too. So anyway, I, I know that on my machine and I have pretty beefy machines, like it's, it takes longer than that. So this is... Getting some processor envy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, some conference reminder. We've got quite a few coming up. MPEX Mountain in Salt Lake City on May 6th. Code Beam in Stockholm on May 19th through the 20th. We've got Elixir EU in London, June 9th and 10th, and then Elixir US in Colorado, August 30th through September 2nd. So we've got links to all those in the show notes. Make sure to check them out for whatever's regionally closest to you or whatever you're most interested in following. Next up, I saw this interesting project. It's this GitHub project, which is really just a readme, but it's the Elixir Code Smells project. It attempts to describe and classify different code smells that we often come across in Elixir projects. So it does a nice job because it defines the problem, often including examples, and includes notes on how you can refactor from that situation into something better. So the project was started by Lucas, who is a PhD student in Brazil. And I thought this could be a fun resource, like a almost like a book club kind of thing, or maybe something to meetups could talk about or company lunch and learns, where you could just kind of pick a topic and just say, hey, do we notice any of this in our in our application? And what could we do to improve it? How could we refactor to remove that code smell? One code smell I noticed in there that, you know, maybe we can have an extended conversation about uh, at some point. You know, you, you remember that, that uh, Ecto migration guide? Yeah. Well, in that guide, we talk about schema migrations, obviously, that's that's usually ran by Ecto, and, but also data migrations. They list in this code smell thing that it's a smell to run data migrations with Ecto. And that's exactly what I did in the Ecto migration guide. So like with an asterisk, though, that like this is a good place to start, not where to end, you know, that this is like the Ecto migrator is just a facilitator for running these things. But the suggestion in, in the code smell guide is is to move that to a mixed task. That's okay too, you know. But anyway, I think there's a lot of more conversation that can happen around that. So it'd be interesting to see. Maybe I should open up an issue there, and we can have a discussion about it. Or maybe that could be a good episode later. But that's yeah, like you said, could be a really good guide to just start picking at some of these these items, adding some items that you've learned through your experience, and 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 put it on there. All right, last up. This is not so much a news item, but it's a today I learned. And so maybe today you learned. So Tyler Young tweets out a tip about how doc tests can actually import your module that you're doc testing. And so the, the syntax is doc test my module, comma, import true. And it's that import true part that was new to me. I didn't realize that we had that option. That'll just import the module's functions. And that's relevant for the doc tests where that can help is if you have like a big long namespace, multiple, you know, modules underneath or namespaces, I guess, not technically modules, you know, that can really shorten the doc test because that can get really tedious if you're having to constantly call the full path to it. So it can make tests more, uh, doc tests more concise, but less copy pastable since it assumes that users will also import that module that's being tested. So, uh, you know, take it, leave it, maybe. But also a reminder that inside of your doc test, you can also import there, like as regular Elixir code. So there's there's still a way to do it that's copy-pastable. Or maybe more preferable, alias it instead of importing. I think the Elixir developers tend to avoid importing. 
and they they tend to prefer aliasing. And that you can also do in the doc test, and that'll work just as well. So anyway, today I learned, and maybe today you learned. And that's it for the news. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Michael Lubis. Michael, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. It's really nice to be here. So I'm glad you could join us because you have a special perspective in the the tech space where we all inhabit. And one of those is talking about the security that we need to be concerned about when we put something up on a public internet. And when we're hosting modern websites today, we have to deal with all types of threats. And I'm looking forward to you because you had a blog post that really dove into how we as developers of our own backend systems can take some steps to even proactively create tooling for ourselves to kind of help with automated attack prevention and just some of the the brute force things that we see a lot. So before we get into all of that, which I'm really looking forward to, I'd love to hear more about you. So first, tell us about yourself. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? I currently live in New York City in Brooklyn. My professional background is in software security. So I've worked for various companies, either as a consultant or on the defensive security team, finding vulnerabilities in web applications, like attacking them and then writing a report for the client or working on a blue team at a company involved in the software development of you know finding vulnerabilities, fixing them, writing tooling to help detect and prevent them. So that's my professional background before coming to Elixir. So that's interesting that you say that that's your background. So now, how did you end up coming to Elixir? Was that like, hey, I want to start doing security analysis for Elixir apps? Or is it like, I'm using Elixir to do something? Like, where did where did you come in with Elixir? Yeah, I was very fortunate because something I see a lot on the forum and, and things is people come to Elixir and then want to find a job with it. I started at Frame.io, which is a really heavy Elixir user, just on the security team, and saw that they were using this language I had never heard of for their backend and said, okay, I'm going to learn that. And that was my decision to to get involved. And I, I really liked the, the language. It was a really cool time. I'm curious about any previous programming experience that you'd had. I assume Elixir was not like your first language that you started developing with. You know, lots of times we use our scripts or things like that just in, in normal IT tasks and especially with like security analysis. So what kind of experience did you have before that? My previous experience was in Python, JavaScript, Ruby, C, kind of, kind of like the standard languages. It, it depends on the projects. My work was with a lot of web applications. So typically on the security teams dealing with that, Everyone tends to know Python. That's kind of like a standard. Ruby is also popular. Metasploit is written in Ruby, I believe. And if you're doing like lower level security, that's like C and C++ work or just, you know, even like the raw assembly. Coming to Elixir was due to the security team at Frame.io, which is really a fantastic team. The company as a whole placed so much emphasis on security. Because the nature of the company, what it does is it you upload video files to their service and then they're shared. It's like a pre-production tool or actually the term is post-production. So this is like before a movie comes out or before some you know big piece of media comes out. They're very concerned about leaks and things. So it was really cool being able to work with my coworkers. So, you know, shout out to Frame.io security team. It was a fantastic learning experience, you know, being able to not only learn, you know, the security aspect of web applications, but also use Elixir in a professional environment. Well, I think that really sets up our discussion well, because sometimes as developers, we take that approach of, I'm just trying to get this to work, right? As soon as I get it to work, yay, I'm done, I can move on. The security mindset comes from a different perspective of how can I break this? And I think it's a very healthy way for us to check ourselves periodically and just hear that perspective. So I'm looking forward to talking some more about these modern threat landscape that we live in. And I think a lot of it involves bots, right? There's a lot of automated crawling of the web. So maybe you can give us an intro to what kind of modern threats we're talking about here. A lot of people may be familiar with like OWASP top 10, thinking about kind of like remote code execution or cross-site scripting or cross-site request forgery. That's not the type of vulnerabilities or exploits are going to be talking about today. That's sort of a different class. It's very difficult to like 
categorize vulnerabilities. There's like philosophical debate about it. But what we're really focused on today is not like executing code on a server that doesn't belong to you or executing JavaScript in a victim browser. It's more about taking a web application that performs some function and the like the act of performing the function is expected, but somebody is automating it in a way that's abusive or, or causing harm to either the company or, or the users. So we'll give some more concrete examples of that in a little bit. My question for the group is what your experience with bots have been either writing a bot or dealing with bots as an application owner. I've written my fair share of hopefully not malicious, but data scraping means to an end type of bots. <laughs> There's a utility billing website that is common in this area that I've often wanted my own data so I can, you know, run charts and graphs and things. And there's just been no way to get it other than just to scrape it off of their website. And because I like to program, it's often been fun for me to a fun challenge to automate retrieving all that data. And then there's also, you know, popular classifieds that you know, I've always thought it would be fun to like, oh, I, I want to see when this item shows up within this criteria. So I want to like scrape the new, the most recent, every hour, the most recent hourly updated classified items and see if it matches my code. I've never actually done that, but I've definitely explored that idea. That's really cool. Yeah. And it, it sounds like you weren't, you know, causing any like excessive load on the server or anything. It was, you know, to access your own information. I've had some you know, also similar kind of fun of, of writing my own like spiders that would crawl a website and looking for content that I cared about. And I, I have been banned from some places where they I blacklisted my IP and I'd had to figure out how to work around that. <laughs> Jeez, Mark. <laughs> but I wasn't trying to be malicious. I think a lot of us, especially as we're starting and playing with programming and we realize we have a lot of tools like for even doing our own scraping of our own website just to see does the content show up in the page like I want it to we can take those same tools and turn them around and put them on you know outside facing thinking of like automated protections like you know WordPress is I think 60% of the web websites are WordPress sites something like that it's like some huge amount so I have a WordPress site as well I know that I use a plugin that does rate limiting on login attempts it sees, hey, there was an article that has this username. So I'm just going to keep trying to log in as that username. And so I'll keep seeing in these logs and notifications that, oh, you know, this user ID is banned for 24 hours because of excessive number of login attempts. And I know it's not them, right? I, I've even done IP reverse lookups to see where are these coming from. And yeah, they're, they're everywhere they shouldn't be, you know, like me logging in from France or... They're in your backyard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> The, th the funny thing, too, is like I'll deploy something on fly and you just watch the logs for a couple minutes and you'll just see PHP, my, you know, 404 is just rolling in PHP, my admin, da, 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 PHP, this PHP, that like just constantly scraping every known IP address in the universe for any flaw. Well, and that's the thing, like IPv4 space is completely known and quantifiable and mappable. Right. And so there's just constant scraping and, and pinging of every IPv4 address. Anyway, so that's some of the our perspective, I guess, or history. So I'd love to hear from you more, Michael, now. So what are some of the things that you've seen? Yeah, very, very similar to what you've described. I was the person who could view like the logs and things from a web application security appliance. And yeah, it's like constant, like .php, .wordpress exploit, the log4j thing. You just see it constantly. And you know, it'll be funny because you'll be running like a, a Django or Ruby on Rails or Phoenix app. So it's like you're not even affected by it, but it'll count it as like an attack attempt or something. So the, the three examples I want to talk about to give us some background for our discussion are related to API abuse through sending out email spam, credit card fraud for a company that has to deal with processing credit cards and the risks that go along with that, and then credential stuffing, which was the, the subject of this blog post. So to start the discussion, let's consider a company that makes project management software and you access it through a web interface. I feel like most listeners of the show could picture that in their head, what kind of company that would look like. And, you know, that company exists. They're trying to make money. They're a business, so they accept credit cards. You can invite people to join a project through an email form, kind of like a you just fill out the email, you write a note to them, you press send, that sends an email and they're like, hey, please join my project. 
So that's the background for our defenders here. Now, put yourself in the shoes of somebody that is doing fraud, like they're sending out email spam for some scam they have. We'll say you want a million dollars, but you have to wire this money to unlock it. it kind of kind of standard. You can imagine what it is. And you're this email spammer. You want to send out spam email, but you don't want to pay money for it. You want to do it for free. So your first stop is probably the major cloud providers, email services, and you'll get banned very quickly off those. They'll, they'll immediately see what you're trying to do. Your next stop will probably be these websites that allow you to do invitations for events, such as, you know, weddings or if you're doing like a mailing list or something, you know, inviting people to, to something to send out email. It's a similar situation where if their core business is around sending out these emails, they're very much aware of this problem and have very strong rate limiting. So with rate limiting, is that where they might restrict the number of invites that can be sent out from a single account? Is that what you have in mind with that? Yeah, exactly. Not only is the rate limiting that they have, that's exactly what you described. They're very good about detecting it. They also will typically have verification where they'll send out an initial email saying, did you actually subscribe to this mailing list? There might be a verification in process where you have to verify your identity. I've seen that with some mail providers. So they're, they're just very strong and very, they have a very good handle on this problem is the core thing. So you're still the email spammer and you still want to send out your spam email. So then you decide to look for companies that aren't really aware of this problem and you land on the project management example. So you figure out you can create a free account or you could create many free accounts. They don't seem to have any detection or prevention for this at all, even from one IP address. And then you figure out you can invite people to a project. You might be thinking like, what, what's the benefit of this? Like you're going to get an email from project management corporation saying that you won a million dollars, but that's kind of not the point for the scam. It's just, it, it almost looks even more official. Like sometimes you'll get people like, oh, wow, this like company says I won a million dollars. It must be legitimate. So in some cases it's even very beneficial to the scammer because the company has all these email verifications set up. It looks like a good email. And they can look and see where this originated from and it's actual real domain, real company. So it gets some legitimacy. They're kind of borrowing legitimacy just by the, the domain that it's served from. Is that kind of what you're seeing there? That's exactly correct. Yes. So the scammer in this case writes like a Python script or an Elixir script and presses send and they see a output of maybe 50,000 emails sent. And that's fantastic because they didn't have to spend any money at all and they got their campaign going. Now switch perspectives to an engineer at this company and it's a very bad day because they just received an email from their provider saying, hey, your spam rate is above a threshold. If it continues, you're going to be kicked off our service. And that's terrible for a company because, you know, email, not only are they using it for the business case of sending out email, but also they rely on it for marketing for password resets. It's suddenly this tier one incident, the board or the senior leadership is probably aware of this problem. Everyone's schedules are shot. It's, it's a terrible day to be working there. And eventually they will get something, you know, to prevent this, but the cost to the attacker was just like searching Crunchbase or something for new companies and they'll, they'll just move on to the next one. So, you know, the, the email form to invite someone, the person implementing this probably thought, okay, you know. This is only going to be used for legitimate reasons. And then this example is to illustrate how it can be used for bad things. For a second there, I thought you were going to say the engineers were excited because they say they saw their KPIs going up. Look how many user invites we got. We're so successful until they get notified that they're spammers. Yeah, that's the unfortunate thing is because not only are the customers affected, of course, you know, the new accounts were not legitimate. They all have to be banned. It's, it's just a bad day for them. What can we do? Like we, a lot of us, you know, we're working in those environments where like it's the small to medium sized businesses, I think that are particularly vulnerable to this that aren't yet aware or haven't put anything in place, right? To try and block this or, or protect themselves from this. So a lot of us developers are going to find ourselves in that situation where either we want to proactively do something to prevent this abuse. What is the way we're going to approach solving this? What can we do? Typically, this kind of problem falls under the classification of bot detection or bot prevention. 
you know, bot in this case, meaning somebody wrote a computer program to serve traffic to a website, but it's obviously not a real user doing it. It's some kind of script or something. So there, this is a whole, you know, field of study. The thing developers listening to the show are probably familiar with is how to make an HTTP requests. For example, spoofing a user agent is like intro to evading bot detection. That's like kind of the first thing you learn about. And that like the properties of the HTTP request itself are kind of where you start for bot detection. You can also look at the fingerprint of like the client TLS stack. It has certain properties that are, you know, different for each one, but it's, it's sort of the same thing with user agents where now people even spoof those. So that's just an example for purely the client. You can also look at when a web browser loads and JavaScript is being loaded. If you're using uh, browser automation like Puppet or Selenium, there are certain properties that indicate you're not a real user, you're some kind of bot, but it's the same situation where those can be spoofed as well. And then there's also things like IP reputation. So that's a quick introduction to like just bot detection at a high level. There's of course more things. And then you also have, you know, just doing time analysis of how many requests came in in a certain period of time. If you're seeing, you know, a lot of new signups or a lot of new attempts to do a credit card transaction, that's, you know, another kind of data point. So there's, there's many different methods available as a defender. Well, I have to ask then, just like for this example that you gave where people might script the ability to create accounts and then send out invites, would something as stupid and annoying as a CAPTCHA be a, a sufficient protection? So CAPTCHAs do work in some cases. Many people find success with them where an attacker will encounter it and then sort of give up and move on to the next thing, which is, you know, that works for many people in many situations. There are unfortunately many ways to bypass them as well. And then there's also the usability argument where not everyone that uses the internet can solve CAPTCHAs. So it introduces this friction problem as well. So it is a very popular and widely deployed solution. It is not perfect for every use case. Yeah, I, I know just yesterday I was logging into a, a a more secured service and I was presented with this CAPTCHA and I failed it three times in a row. It's like, <laughs> oh, this thing sucks. I hate this. And you're pretty pretty good with technology too. Like you know a lot about this. So you can only imagine how it, how it feels for the majority of users. Yeah, so I agree. It's not a great user experience solution. Given that, you know, maybe there are still some ways that, that some, you know, business people might say, yes, we want to just do that. But you'd mentioned some of those other approaches where, you know, looking at requests, request headers, maybe give us a little rundown on a few of the different ones again. At a high level, you can analyze the client behavior itself. So just purely a client sending like a curl request. You can, there's a lot of information you can get out of that, such as the user agent, some properties of it, the IP address itself the TLS stack that's being used, if it's HTTP connection, those are all all different things. If you have a web browser, there's a lot of information that can be fingerprinted, but there's also privacy concerns with that as well. And then you can also look at just how many requests are being sent over some period of time, which seems like a very basic thing. But what, I, what I've seen situations is where you have some bot detection mechanisms in place, but if an attacker figures out how to spoof themselves correctly, then you're suddenly seeing 100,000 requests, but it looks like a legitimate user from all of the, the things you've defined. Are there any particular tools or maybe resources that you think that you could recommend uh, that we could check out to, to understand how can I do that in Elixir or any, anything like that? So yeah, the, the subject of the blog post I wrote was very, it's very limited in scope to taking IP addresses that are coming in seeing what time analysis is going on with them, how many requests are they sending, and then either blocking them for a period of time or just throttling the number of requests. So the blog post should be you know, linked in the show notes. At a very high level, it covers how to set up the victim application. So it's, it's not like the what is you know, credential stuffing or something. There's a lot of content online that just sort of describes it at a dictionary level. My goal with it was to provide a tutorial where you download an Elixir application and you actually run the thing and get to see what the attack looks like. To do the throttling, I used the plug attack library, which is really fantastic. 
it allows you to find rules and things based on certain conditions. It uses ETS for storage. So, you know, you, you might be thinking about how to design this with Elixir and you run into that agenda server problem with the sequential, you know, messages in the inbox. So this allows you to have very good performance and also, you know, get the security property of throttling requests. Yeah, I do just want to plug this blog post you've written. It's really what cued me into this discussion with you today. And we have a link to this in the show notes, so do check it out. It says, throttling and blocking bad requests in Phoenix web applications with plug attack. You mentioned it here, but I want to just really highlight this. What I loved about this post and this approach that you did is you set up a victim application and then a separate attack. I think that's a great playground for us to think about with our own applications. Like, hey, can I, can I write a little script that will attack my app so I can see that my use of plug attack is working for throttling requests and, and things like that? It's really useful to kind of get both sides of the situation. I was thinking about, you know, how you would do testing typically with, with XUnit, which is a really good approach. It allows you to simulate an HTTP request like through your con, and that's very good. For this situation, though, I wanted to show the reader what it's like to run a credential stuffing attack. Many listeners are probably familiar with it, but the basic overview is when you go online, there's a number of username and password pairs that you have to use on various websites. And typically websites get hacked, unfortunately, and that username and password pair now becomes public information. The common like scare tactic is, oh, your credentials are on the dark web. So you have to pay for this thing to scan the dark web. But this is like public. And yeah, the, the summary is that credential stuffing means the username and password pairs that you use online eventually do become public, unfortunately. So it's the important thing is to be using a unique password for every website, and then you won't be affected by this. There's also other things like two-factor authentication that helps, but that's not available everywhere. There was a Usenix talk by the former Facebook CISO. I believe he's a Stanford professor now. He said the number one reason that people's information is stolen online, you know, forget like exploits and everything else. It's just due to credential stuffing. It's people reusing passwords and then other people taking those password lists and just automating the process of trying them on various websites. So credential stuffing is taking these leaked lists and just trying them out as fast as you can in as many places as you can to see what sticks. Exactly. It's very common and it affects many people. Many people reuse passwords, unfortunately. So it's very common. And I wanted to demonstrate with this blog post, you know, what a credential stuffing attack would look like, not only in your own logs when you see these requests coming in, but also how it feels to perform it as an attacker, what it's like getting blocked by an effective, uh, effective measure. I've used unique passwords on all my websites for a long time now, but at some point, my username, I, I don't use unique usernames on every website. So my username got out there. I would get emails daily from my banking provider saying that someone was trying to log in with my username and they would say, you should change your password. They didn't get in, but you should change your password anyway. So I change it and then it would happen again and I change it and have again. And one day I was like, I'm sick and tired of this. So I went and changed my banking username to a random password. Yeah. <laughs> and I never got that email again. Yeah, that's an unfortunate side effect of this happening is oh, there's a lot of different controls people attempt and some of them have a better user experience than others. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about the library plug attack. Like, where does this come from and how do we use that? So the library plug attack was written expressly for this problem of throttling bad requests coming in. The way you use it is you install it just through like your mix file and then you define various rules. So the two rules that I talk about in the blog post, one is throttling requests, meaning after a 60 second period, only allow 10 login requests. And if you violate that, you just get throttled. So it's still possible to do, you know, nine requests, nine requests over, over a period of time. The next rule that I define is called fail to ban. The name is based on this other piece of software typically run at the server layer. But the point of fail to ban is if you're doing too many requests over a different time period, you can ban the IP address for some period of time. The blog post walks you through how to do this, some debugging problems I had when setting it up. 
and how to you know make sure everything is working correctly. The library itself is really fantastic. I highly recommend it if you are at all interested in credential stuffing. It's very useful for preventing this problem. I guess one question I have, you don't necessarily have to have an answer to this because it's Mikhail Muscula who wrote Plug Attack, which is a totally awesome library. And as far as I understand this, it's using ETS tables. Then I start to think about, well, what if I have multiple servers running? And what if I'm deploying one or two times a day? It's going to be resetting those ETS tables. and I'm going to be kind of blowing away some of that cache. It wouldn't negate all the benefits, but it might reduce some of them. Because now you can have like 10, nine requests times two over 60 seconds. Right. If I've got two servers and then if I'm doing deployments, then then it gets reset. When I was writing the future work for the blog post, that was that was something I don't think I included it, but that was part of, you know, expanding the scope of it. I really wanted to get it published in kind of one unit so everyone could get the core part of it. But yeah, if you're experiencing that that situation where you have a very distributed application, there may be other solutions like using a, a vendor that deals with bot detection, for example, because you're probably, you know, larger. I wanted to focus on the blog post of, you know, kind of just a one node deployment and plug attack was the perfect library for the for the situation I found. Yeah, I do think really you'd probably end up putting something in front of your entire web application, like a a WAF a web application firewall where it could do some of that detection. I know there are commercial products for that too. But, you know, maybe it's even putting a small Elixir app of your own creation up in front that does, you know, kind of some of that load balancing stuff too. I don't know. It's an interesting thought. I know that Plug Attack has like a storage implementation behavior. Like if you really wanted to, maybe you could like implement uh, Redis or some other storage mechanism. Yeah, that is that is true. That's a really good point. You also mentioned some of these credit card fraud and any other types of automated attacks that we should be aware of. Our other two for the example of the project management company are related to credit card fraud and credential stuffing. We just covered credential stuffing very well here. So the, the credit card fraud example is very straightforward. If you're doing credit card fraud, you end up obtaining lists of hundreds of thousands of credit card numbers through various means. And then you need to verify which of these credit cards will work for transactions and which one will not work. So you don't want to go to a local store and you'll get the cops called on you for that. I already see where this is going. It's like, ah, sign up for our trial. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Unfortunately, a common misconception with account security is that if somebody gives you a credit card, they're a good account because who would do something bad after giving you a payment mechanism. But unfortunately, that's not always the case. So something that could affect our company here, it's a, it's a similar situation to the previous example where their controls maybe aren't as good as larger companies just because they haven't had time to set them up. And the attacker makes many new accounts, signs up, does a transaction. And now it's a very bad day, not only for the the customers whose money was stolen, but also the payment processor, the company that is trying to sell a service. So that's the example that I wanted to talk about for credit card fraud. So I guess this kind of comes back to kind of what we were talking about before, preventing these kind of things. You have to be kind of paying attention, like single IP addresses are sending huge amounts. Things are bigger than average. I think one thing just is to be aware that this exists, right? And to have it be part of the way we think about the systems. And when we think about taking payments, we think, well, how could this be abused? Just that pause and how could I abuse this if I was malicious? And that can hopefully lead us in some directions of, you know, thinking about mitigations and other security measures. Absolutely, yeah. So we'd also mention this idea of API abuse. There's lots of different ways that an API can be abused. And one of those I just think is interesting where I think rate limiting still plays a role. And that's that's where your blog post really kind of was focused was rate limiting. And sometimes put up a service and it has a very expensive operation where someone can just do a query and it can be very CPU intensive or memory intensive. Then it opens us up to potential denial of service just by consuming all of our resources by having a whole bunch of requests hitting it at the same time. And so then it becomes like a denial of service attack. But I think rate limiting is one of those things that can also help there. Yeah, that's absolutely right. The theme through all of these stories that I hope to illustrate is not, 
you know, that this specific one is the most important. It's that these areas of your application that allow you to, to perform some action that's expensive, either in a business sense or in a computation sense, you have to be aware of the threats. So, so I'm sure the listeners of this show can, you know, use these examples and think of e even better ones than I could come up with now because they have so much more experience, you know, with their own software. One of the things I think would be interesting, and I've never actually done this, but I know I've worked in projects where we have very large customers and many other smaller customers, and they have different API needs. You know, they're integrating with our service and this large customer wants to be able to hit our API a lot because they're doing these automated batch jobs and there's like, boom, 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 we want to update all these things and query all these things. And then other customers might have much less of a need for that. With the rate limiting, being able to offer like a paid level, like at this level, you will have access to this much, this many API requests per minute or something like that. You know, that becomes a feature or a, a sales level. I don't know. Have you guys ever considered doing something like that with your services? So at the places I've worked, we, we have seen, you know, various data needs depending on what the customer, the customer has. That's just kind of in my previous professional work. In a lot of cases, the, the problem I saw as a security engineer was not being able to classify and label traffic very well. An unfortunate problem that happens frequently is you'll have a customer who you work very closely with and their business is very important. And then they will hire a security firm who runs a very noisy vulnerability scan, gets the corporate IP, you know, like the VPN band, and it's a very bad thing for the relationship between the companies. And people always say, you know, like no, no blame culture or something. And that is true in the places I've worked. I have, I have never felt like, you know, like blamed for a problem that was going on, but I always thought like I could, I could do this in a better way. So I started Paraxial this year and that was a big motivation was kind of creating security software from the perspective of somebody that has had to use it professionally. So a big goal I had in the design was designing for the, the engineer or the person that is using the software, not for, uh, you know, like, like a flashy demo or something to, to get funding, just to focus on who, who are the people actually using the software. So your blog post is posted on the paraxial.io website. So there's a link to that. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about Paraxial and what you intend to do there, especially since you have this Elixir focus. Yeah, that's a great question. My focus with Paraxial, with starting it, is to do bot detection and prevention for exclusively Elixir applications. So the company has started with this focus on serving customers that use Elixir. If you work in a security department and you have problems, it's very typical to go through lists of vendors and typically there'll be like a side project that they did where someone wrote, you know, like an Elixir agent or something, but you can tell it's not very supported. Maybe the person even left. You, you get the sense that you're not really the, the company's primary focus and you're going to be finding bugs and reporting them. So the goal with focusing on Elixir as a company is to bring this benefit of being able to detect and prevent malicious activity to customers that are using Elixir. So is this the idea where I might have my traffic go through a Praxial proxy or something like that? Or is it more like I add dependencies to my project that I could use on my self-hosting? Kind of what do you have in mind there? The goal is to make installation of Praxial IO as easy as possible. So you add a dependency to your mix file and then you define a plug for what data you want to have analyzed. And that's the whole installation. You don't need to mess with server configurations at all. And once you're set with that, you're protected against various types of attacks. So this was something I really wanted when I was working and thought there's, you know, better ways to be doing this. And that's the focus we're going on with how to install and get configured with, with Paraxial. Do you have anything in mind for raising visibility, like a dashboard or something where I can see, woohoo, we had X number of bands or something. Seven bots were blocked. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, that's one of everyone's favorite parts. Once you install it, you get to see what, what traffic is being blocked. There's some screenshots up on our webpage right now that you can go see, and then we'll be releasing more, you know, as uh, development progresses. And if people listening to this podcast are interested, you can, of course, contact the, the sales at Paraxial.io, either with, you know, sales inquiries, or if you just have questions about bot detection that involve Elixir, I will definitely be reading it and, and seeing what's going on. 
the real mark of success here is if you have a live dashboard page or a live book example, <laughs> something along along those lines. I'm just kidding. But why Elixir at, at all here? Like as a, as a company, business, you know, financially thinking here, like Elixir is still, you know, small tots compared to Rust, JavaScript, PHP, Node, whatever, you know, like all that stuff. Like why why Elixir? There's a number of benefits. I wouldn't say Elixir is small. The um, acquisition of Frame.io was for over a billion dollars by Adobe. So there's definitely business interest in the area. That's not a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> you would go higher than that, right? <laughs> On a more personal level, I really like the language and the whole ecosystem. So I wanted that to be the, the focus of the company. When you look at businesses that are using Elixir, there's a, a large number of them that want to have this kind of protection and they're like interested in this area, but there's unfortunately currently no one really focused on it. If there is, you know, a bot vendor that wants to do Elixir, it's unfortunately not going to be the primary focus of their business because the numbers just don't add up for them. But having a company like Paraxial IO focused on it, you know, the the costs when you just kind of balance them out, it makes sense for for this area. So that's that's what motivated me to do this. So I'm just curious what this magical plug does when you install it and it, you say it starts blocking stuff. What's it doing behind the scenes? Is it doing it all locally? Is it sending it off to your service? And like, what's happening? Did, did we just install machine learning here? <laughs> <laughs> You just installed his botnet. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to not be focused on like the machine learning aspect as the company, because th that often feels like something that comes later, where once you have everything else covered, it's, you could almost think of this pyramid where you could just start with doing like timing analysis. And unfortunately, not every company has that part like foundationally built out yet. Everyone wants to kind of jump to the top with like the, the machine learning things. So. That's like the way I think about that area. For installing the plug, there are different aspects of it. There is a locally blocking component where, you know, if you violate a rule that you've defined or that is set. So if you do, you know, 51 requests in a 60 second time period, the 51st will be blocked. But then there is also communication between the agent itself and then the backend server. Is that a, a, like per IP? you know, or per token? What, how, how are you tracking like requests per second within a plug? A gen server was really useful when I was doing this. You can, you know, find a way to accumulate it through like an ETFs table, very similar to what plug attack does. And then you can clear it after a, a time period. Like, what do you do if you're a distributed app? You know, like you've been load balanced, you know, out to different so the benefit of, of having a vendor involved in this process is that you don't have to now engineer your own distributed database. You can kind of offload this problem to Paraxial and you don't have to worry about having to build out all of the, these things yourself. All right. So sorry if this is rehashing then. So the, the plug then is making a request to you guys that it then stores it and takes care of it. So every one of my web requests, for example, is then tied, you know, dependent on a web request to yours. Does that sound right? There's not an exact one-to-one -one mapping, but the idea that you have is, is very accurate. So we're about out of time, but I did want to cover and just kind of think about like me as an Elixir developer, when should I be thinking about this? When should I worry about this? And I think, okay, well, if I've got my personal projects, they don't need this, right? They don't need, I don't even need to necessarily worry about throttling requests, unless that's something I want to add to my personal project as a way of exploring this and starting to you know try it out. I think that makes sense. But do you have any guidelines about when you think, yes, this is when you should be thinking about these kinds of things, these either business goals or, or project size or any metrics you can kind of share? When you're designing your project and thinking through the kind of expensive things that you're doing, either computationally or through some kind of external sending HTTP requests, doing credit card processing. Those are like the areas to focus on. As long as you're aware of how your software works and have a testing plan to discover the different properties at certain edge cases, you'll, you'll be okay. There's a lot of really good tools available. Elixir is definitely one of the best. And using those, you can get a very good picture of how to defend yourself from these attacks. So I guess closing question would be, you having been security focused, for a long time, working at companies where you are security focused. I've been at 
companies, you know, where we, we do have compliance. And with compliance comes where you have to have processes for incident handling and anything like that. Like, do you have any advice or tips about what we can do to prepare for incidents or management of anything like that? So I, I don't like giving unsolicited advice because I've, I've always found when someone did it to me, it was wrong. My experience has been when we've practiced for an incident by testing the controls we have in place and simulating ourselves, when something real happens, it was, it was not as bad as going into it cold. So being prepared, it was definitely the biggest thing for me. My closing thought is that if you're at all interested in security, or maybe you're working in security and listening to this episode because it, it looked like the security episode, learning Elixir is a really great experience. It will enable you to do these defensive security projects that feel like you're kind of reaching for the wrong tool in a completely improved way. Well, thank you, Michael, for joining us and talking about this. I love where we can take a step back and think about the security perspective and just kind of revisit some of the assumptions that we make about how our applications will just be, oh, they'll just be safely ignored on the internet because it's just small. It's like, but, but no, if it's on the public web, it will be crawled, it will be hit. And what can we do to start thinking about that and little steps we can take to you know, mitigate some of those risks. I, I think it's great fun. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us and sharing Paraxial IO and what your mission is there. Where can people follow you online or if they want to get in touch or they'd like to continue this conversation, where should they go to do that? If you're interested in purchasing or becoming part of the beta program, or you just have questions about the software and want to learn more about bot detection involving Elixir, we're on Twitter, GitHub, Emailing sales at Paraxial.io is definitely one of the best ways. We'll see that email. We definitely check that inbox. So yeah, we're really looking forward to kind of talking more with the community. And I think this goes back to your question about why focus on Elixir. It feels like the community is, is you know, while it is smaller than larger languages, it also just enables this better dialogue between, you know, different parts of it. Speaking of maybe on, on on a great note, which is that that's a great note too. We could like we could leave it there. But the the Stack Overflow survey just went out, and Elixir is almost always on top of not on top, but it's in the top of the most loved languages. I, I if I recall right, I think it's like number four this year or something like that. So yeah, like the interest is there, you know. So if if the Elixir community gets gets larger. Maybe Paraxial's uh, emails to sales at Paraxial.io uh, will get larger too. <laughs> oh yeah, we're we're very optimistic about you know the future that's going to happen. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciated the time you took to talk with us. But unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. Uh-huh.